This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here we go, hour two on a great day for talk radio, albeit a cold one. It's uh, cold now, but it's going to get perceptibly colder into the wee hours uh, with a wind chill. What did he say? Minus 24. Ouch. That doesn't sound good. As I was saying, if uh, you don't have to go out in that kind of weather, you don't. But otherwise, uh, a lot of, and we were saying, you know, when it comes to uh, the full service gas station people, I don't know who wants to work that beat when it's that cold, but uh, more and more people, if they got to fill up, are going to use your services because they don't want to get out of the car. And then we were talking, too, about folks who were traveling along the 407. And if you've got a pickup truck and put the tailgate down, uh, does that mean they won't catch you or nab you for uh, the particular fee for using the road? Ted writes, uh, re the 407, early on I had a truck, always drove with my gate down, purely for aerodynamic reasons, didn't get a bill for several months. Someone told me they had to get a photo of both plates, was told if caught, the fine is massive. Innocent mistake on my part. And by the way, uh, the 407 has a reciprocal collection agreement with New York State, and he says he thinks a lot of states, particularly border ones. Uh, That's what I was wondering about, allowed, uh, because, of course... You know, people abusing the 407. The 407 abuses a lot of people. Let's be honest with their fees. Man, if you don't got a transponder, ouch, you get surprised. But uh, in a pinch, it's something you're happy to use. When it comes to driving, now this is interesting because we know there are new rules. This is to deter drinking and driving. Uh, the number one cause of uh, criminal death, I guess, in uh, Canada. And this is according to the Justice Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, so they wanted to deter this, and what they planned was uh, to stiffen the fines and the penalties and the regimen for uh, taking drunks off the road. But it seems to me, and we've talked about this already early in the new year, it's uh, somewhat excessive, but you'd be surprised how excessive it can be. There's a report from Sean O'Shea at Global News that uh, they can even come into your home if they feel uh, the need to, to put the pinch on a drunk driver into your home, into bars, into restaurants. You'd think can't be. Well, let's find out. Uh, This seems to be the case. In fact, Joe Newberger is Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger and Partners, and he's joined the Oakley Show at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Joe, good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. How are you? I'm very good, but, uh, you know, I guess I'm a little surprised or even shocked that this would be the case. Is it that uh, they can actually, the police now, have the powers to come into a person's home and uh, submit them to a breathalyzer? Kind of, yeah. So let me just explain a little bit in detail. Police have always had the ability to investigate a crime, and impaired driving is just like any other crime. So if they receive information that there is a drunk driver, and that drunk driver happens to be at a bar or happens to be at, or the alleged drunk driver happens to be at a bar or their home, they can attend that location. So let's say it's a home, they can knock on the door and speak with the individual. And if they detect that there's an issue of impairment, and that there has been recent driving, they can make a demand for the person to provide a sample. What has changed, however, is the provision that's now in the legislation allows officers to charge people up to two hours after cessation of driving. And what's so draconian about this is that um, if, if a person blows over and is charged, the defense that they only have under the section of the criminal code now is that they will have to not only testify but call scientific evidence a toxicologist to read back the readings to establish that at the time they were driving, assuming whatever time that is, if that can be established appropriately, 
that they did that they were under the legal limit or didn't have alcohol in their system, and that that reading will have to consist with the reading that the police obtained uh, from the intoxilizer. This is a very draconian section that then significantly shifts the burden on an accused to marshal that type of evidence for a defense. That, in my opinion, is incredibly significant and an incredible erosion of our rights in these types of cases. And it can give license for officers to more frequently attend at these locations and seek out individuals because of the timeline and now how strict the defense will be and how much of an onus it will be on an accused. Well, that's kind of against the principle of law. It's only tax law where there's a reverse onus, right? I mean, well, we, yeah, I mean, we have some reverse onuses in, in criminal law, and then the ability to rebut that is usually a low threshold, but they're few and far between. And in my opinion, this is completely unconstitutional because from an access to justice standpoint, too, not everybody who's charged will have the ability to hire an expert uh, and, and be able to do this. And if it, and if, if part, and we don't know how this will play out, if the person also has to establish if it's unclear, maybe they had a drink before they got in the car, but they certainly were not over the legal limit. How will they establish their pattern of drinking sufficiently to uh, muster this defense? So this could easily lead to wrongful convictions. This is really a step in the wrong direction, and it's a significant erosion of protection of rights of individuals. What about the aspect of a, a preemptive type of uh, engagement with the police officer, Uh it says here, if the police come and find you at the restaurant, they can take you out of the restaurant, despite the fact that you've been drinking at the restaurant, and maybe you weren't going to drive anyway. Well, it, that will engage something a bit different. So, again, let's say they get information that a person who's driven to a restaurant appears to be impaired. So some citizen had seen this car, called 911, gave the license plate, and then the location of where the person, the police, arrive. They enter into this establishment. Let's say it's a restaurant, so there's no it's not like a home where you need a particular warrant to go in, and they meet the person and they are intoxicated, maybe they can arrest them and then bring them out, uh, take them to the station and get a breathalyzer. So uh, the person's not in the car. They may not have been driving for some period of time. The officer won't rely on an individual to say, hey, look, officer, I wasn't drinking when I was driving, but I've been here with my buddies watching a hockey game having drinks. And so that can lead to extreme abuses and, again, to wrongful charges and wrongful convictions. And uh, what you've got to do then as the person who's been charged, uh, prove that it's outside of a two-hour window or you're not going to drive? I mean, I don't understand well, that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, this is going to be, you know, the sections are a little convoluted. We're going to have to see how this plays out in court. But the way it looks that, you know, if the driving is within the preceding two hours, you have to establish that in those preceding two hours, you started to drink what I presume from the legislation after and that um, you have to marshal toxicological evidence to establish that defense. In other words, you have to do a readback on the readings that's provided by the police or in the prosecution evidence to show that you're under the legal limit or that you had zero alcohol in your system at the time. So it's unclear. And, and that's why I add the other element. Let's say somebody did have a drink before they drove, but they had two beers. They got to the bar, started to drink more, decided at the bar, you know what, I'm going to take an Uber or a taxi home. But that doesn't matter. The police still find you to be over 80. And then you may have may be in an impossible position to establish that at the time you were driving, you were not over the legal limit, but you'll be convicted anyways. This is this is against Section 7 of the Charter, Section 8. It, to me, it's highly unconstitutional. What's really bewildering is how come this wasn't all thought through before they imposed this law? <laughs> well, you know, because what I say is, and, and I'm, I mean this with the greatest of 
of respect to our government, they're not thinking. And we've seen a lot of legislation this year now, uh, unprecedented to me being in 26 years of practice, where there have been several pieces of knee-jerk legislation in relation to cases or cries out from certain groups in the community. For example, not just the impaired driving, because that has to do for me, it's a bait and switch with respect to the marijuana legalization. There is insufficient uh, there's an insufficient regime in place and testing in place, in my opinion, to adequately address detecting impairment by drug. And so the bait and switch here is look how tough we've got on drinking by alcohol. And we put in these very serious provisions, public, look at this, don't look at that. Next knee-jerk reaction we've seen from the case out in Saskatchewan, that murder of the young Indigenous man. Whether the, the government liked the verdict or not, they decided to act on it, and legislation is right down the pipe now to get rid of preemptory challenges to juries, get rid of preliminary inquiries, you know, all sorts of things, knee-jerk reaction. The Gomeshi case, didn't like it, Bill C-51. Any communication between a complainant and accused that's relevant to the subject matter, too bad, accused person. You can't cross-examine on that. You're going to have to disclose everything. The complainant will get a lawyer, and we're going to vet it through a judge. Unprecedented, an erosion of rights, knee-jerk reaction legislation. So what we are seeing is a trend not just with impaired driving, but across the board now, this government doesn't think. They have a particular mandate that they want to address and a vision for whatever reason, and they are intervening in criminal law in a way I haven't seen in 26 years. Joe Newberger's on the line. He's Global News Radio's law expert. Now, you know, it's somewhat trite to say uh, it's a legal system, not a justice system. I don't know if you agree or disagree, but there's another story here, and I was citing it yesterday about uh, the person charged with the first murder in Toronto in 2019, uh, Lee Ming, 34, of Toronto, uh, allegedly stabbed a guy in Scarborough uh, first day of the new year. But his rap sheet, this is what has me bewildered, uh, sentenced to two years less a day on top of 256 days of pretrial custody for robbery, and failing to comply in Newmark in 2013. Two years ago, convicted of possession of a firearm and received time served, 45 days pre-sentence custody and a $10 fine. In January 2014, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit an indictable offense, an armored truck robbery, and received a suspended sentence, 18 months probation on top of time served. Also, convictions for assaulting his girlfriend, then breaching conditions to stay away from her. And now the guy is up for first-degree murder. I'm thinking all of these things, the rap sheet that goes back to 2013, shouldn't he still be behind bars? Well, I have to say, when in describing what, assuming that that is accurately reported from what his criminal record says, uh, 45 days pretrial custody on a possession of a firearm is a very low sentence, and there has to be something unusual about the case, something highly unusual about the case, to receive that type of a sentence. Uh, and on the flip side, the conspiracy, again, that's an extremely lenient sentence because a conspiracy to commit a, an armed robbery could easily, especially if there's any inclination to use firearms, could attract three to four or five years. So it's um, these are low sentences. And if that's an accurate reporting of his criminal record, there must be unusual circumstances about those two uh, sentencing. And so, yeah, I would agree that on its face they seem fairly low. And it seems that we have, unfortunately, a person here who's been a recidivist and a danger to the community, and nothing uh, has been sufficient in place. But I will say this again. I don't believe the principle of deterrence is something that I think is an anomaly. It doesn't really work. 
people just do what they do. They don't think about what sentence they'll get. So we have to be careful in society to determine, are we going to give sentences to incapacitate people and keep them behind bars? Or unfortunately, do we get to a certain stage where enough is enough and then they get a very long sentence? So you're not a fan of the three strikes you're out rule? No, I'm not. I don't think that's good because it does not leave. We've seen the dangers in the United States, what qualifies for three strikes, and people have been in jail for life uh, for, for offenses where they never should be in. And we should never repeat what goes on in the United States. It's not a system we should ever emulate. That being said, we need fairness in sentencing, and that includes proper denunciation uh, when it comes to offenses which are very serious and are a risk to the community. Finally, Joe, uh, the 45 days pre-sentence custody for the possession of a firearm and uh, the $10 fine. What's that about? No idea. It's unusual. (laughs) Very unusual. I mean, I've handled possession of firearms and uh, there's, you know, guns and gangs and there's specific units to handle this for prosecution purposes. And they do not take it lightly, nor do judges. Uh, And so something unusual went on there. I can't tell you. But something, uh, there was something unusual about the facts. Who knows what was mm. going on behind it? So we don't know enough at this stage to make a proper uh, comment on it or analysis of, of how that played out. Right. But there are several episodes here that I cited, and in each yeah. one, uh, something peculiar is going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, you know, right. who knows if he was cooperating with authorities? We just don't know. And unfortunately, it's now resulted in the charge of a of murder, which is very unfortunate. Well, uh, needless to say, yes. Uh, and uh, who yeah. knows, maybe all of these things escalate to a point where uh, another guy could have been alive still uh, if yeah. the judge or the uh, justice system had taken uh, stricter measures. But we'll leave it at that, Joe. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate it. You have a good night. You too. Take care, John. Thank you. Joseph Newberger again, Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.